Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Chris Preble discusses what we really get for our military spending. Doug Bandow argues that European NATO members should be paying more for their own defense. John McWhorter talks about poverty and the war on drugs. Robert Woodson explains the power of entrepreneurship. And Fleming Rose discusses the value of free and unfettered speech. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Big changes here at the Cato Institute. Uh, John Allison, as you may know, is leaving the Cato Institute as uh, CEO and president. But of course, he's not going away entirely. I'm sure he will be more than happy to spend less time in Washington, D.C. and more time in North Carolina. Uh, John Allison will remain on the Cato Institute board and he will become the chairman of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute. And today we're going to spend a little bit of time talking to Cato's new president, Peter Gettler. Peter, welcome. Caleb, great to be with you. Thank you for coming downstairs to uh, talk with me for a little bit here. Appreciate it. It's great to uh, spend time with the the man with the golden voice who's been <laughs> my company in the car so many times. So uh, we, you spoke with us uh, on April 1st, which was your first day. March 30th, actually. March 30th. All right. So your first day on the job was April 1st. Correct. And um, well, just for the benefit of our listeners, tell us about your background a little bit. Well, my career was spent in finance. I was an investment banker. I worked in the fixed income debt markets, advising clients, mostly Fortune 500 clients on debt financing around the world and and risk management, managing the the risks in their liability portfolios and the currency exposures wherever they were in their businesses. And uh, I started out working for a, a great firm in the 1980s, Solomon Brothers, but then saw the firm start to change and decided to leave. And I went to Merrill Lynch at a time when Merrill Lynch was evolving from being a retail brokerage and trying to become an investment bank. And that was just a great experience because for me, I always enjoyed business and the client interaction, but it was about more than just executing deals and getting paid for it. It was great to feel like you were part of something that's bigger than yourself. And at Merrill, when you're trying to build a franchise, trying to break in to markets against established competitors, it was just a very satisfying experience. And then I spent the rest of my career doing that. I worked for two additional firms who were both trying to develop an investment banking capability in the U.S. Um, The last part of my career was spent at Barclays Capital, was the investment banking arm of Barclays PLC. And they were trying to build an investment bank in the U.S., and I got hired to spearhead and quarterback that effort. And um, I ran uh, the investment banking coverage functions as well as uh, securitization, uh, leverage finance globally, global, global loans. And uh, we had great success, uh, not just as individuals, but more importantly, as a group of people building a franchise and and uh, competing against entrenched firms and winning. And it was a great, great experience. Now, some of your uh, more recent work, and uh, again, when you uh, spoke with us, essentially the day before you be- became uh, president of the Cato Institute, you detailed a lot of the work that you've done with the Atlas Network, which is just down the block from us here at the Cato Institute. Of course, the Atlas Network supports uh, the spread of free market libertarian ideas around the world and, and provides a lot of startup assistance for fledgling think tanks that are facing risks that we don't really have to think about very much here in the think tank world in Washington, D.C. So detail some of the work that you've done with Atlas. I've been involved with Atlas for sev- several years. It actually, I, I didn't even know about the existence of Atlas until Tom Palmer left Cato, K- didn't, didn't, completely leave Cato, but the balance of his time moved from being a dedicated senior fellow at Cato to running the international programs at Atlas. And as a uh, supporter of Cato over the years, I had always been very inspired by Tom's work as he described it at various Cato events and some of the people from around the world who he would bring to these events and and introduce to, to Cato supporters. And so when Tom was spending more time at Atlas, um, I just started to learn more about the organization. And, you know, uh, what I call the global liberty movement has always been kind of the center of uh, my family's philanthropic interests, you know, 
an international movement, you know, organizations in the U.S. as well as overseas. And uh, the international aspect of Atlas really appealed to me. And as I became a supporter of the organization, I began to become more involved as what I'll call a as on a volunteer basis. I joined their advisory council and then a couple of years ago joined the Atlas board. And I tried to be an active and engaged board member, uh, traveled around the world meeting some of the partner organizations. Sometimes these have been as small as, you know, one or two gentlemen I spent time with in Namibia who are trying to start a think tank, a free market think tank there. They've set up shacks in shanty towns where poor people can come and read Adam Smith and Hayek and Milton Friedman, all the way to visiting established uh, organizations like the Center for Civil Society in, in, in India and virtually everything in between. And what's very interesting when I've been attending Atlas conferences is you meet people again from very different or organizations in terms of stage of their development. But you meet people from countries that really run the spectrum in terms of what the state of liberty is in those countries from, you know, largely free countries um, like, let's say, the U.S., who we might think is moving in the wrong direction, to countries where um, there is a very uh, sad state of civil, civil liberties, um, economic, economic freedom, where people are taking great risks in order to um, bring the message of liberty to the people of their country and try to expand freedom in their country in order to build better lives for, for people in those countries, often underdeveloped, what we would call poor, you know, poor countries. And it's really inspiring to meet people who putting everything on the line in order to engage in the global struggle for, for liberty, that they're risking you know, prison, violence, possibly death. Um, it really gives a lot of meaning to what we're doing here at, at Cato. Cato is seen as, I think quite rightly, the most important libertarian you know, organization in the world, an organization that is an inspiration and an aspiration for many people building think tanks overseas. And therefore, I believe that Cato has a role in the global liberty movement that you know, transcends its impact on policy here in the, in the U.S., which you know, that impact is already considerable. So I think that uh, it's important for our supporters to know that uh, the role of Cato is probably even bigger than many of them imagine it to be. And that is something that uh, really attracted me to the, the uh, um, to becoming a full-time employee at Cato and wanting to, to uh, accept the responsibility for leading Cato. You now live in Washington, D.C., and uh, there are many complaints to be had about living in Washington, uh, D.C., um, but what attracted you to this job here at Cato, and, and when did you become acquainted with the Cato Institute? I became acquainted with Cato as an undergraduate at MIT, writing a paper about Social Security. And I stumbled across a book, some of the early work of Cato uh, was on Social Security, uh, and author Peter Ferrara. Uh, I obtained some of, some of his work and used that as source material for my, for my research. Um, Ed Crane said, oh, that book was Social Security, The Inherent Contradiction. And I can't actually remember the name of the title, so I'm not going to assume that was the book because I once heard a politician speak at Cato, and he talked about being an undergraduate and scraping money together in order to subscribe to the Cato Journal. And the Cato Journal didn't start publishing until the early 80s. So I don't want to tell any tall tales, but I, I, uh, I was able to get some, some Cato material and learned about the organization. And then, uh, you know, you, sometimes you uh, procrastinate, and I, I always thought about being a Cato supporter, but uh, didn't, didn't do that until about 15 years ago. And I started to, um, to contribute to Cato financially. And what is great about Cato and something that we're obviously committed to continue is that as a, as a sponsor of Cato, uh, my family and I, we always felt like really members of the team. Um, some of the events, whether it's the benefactors 
uh, Benefactors Summit, the Cato Club 200 retreat, or the other events like city seminars that we've inten- attended. Uh, it's been a great opportunity to get to know other Cato donors and also the Cato, Cato scholars. And as I've come to Washington um, more regularly in recent years, I was always able to set up appointments to, to meet, meet scholars, some of whom I've become you know, very close friends with over the years. And uh, I've just always found Cato's work so compelling from the perspective of the intellectual quality uh, of the work. And I think that that is one of the things that really sets Cato apart, setting a very high bar for quality intellectual content, yes, but also the way things are presented, um, a commitment to excellence in really all elements of things that reflect on Cato. Um, the most important thing for me is Cato's adherence to principle over the, over the years that I've been a supporter. I remember being visited by one of the development team from Cato around the time of the Iraq War. And they described to me that it was a tough fundraising year because Cato's stand on the war was unpopular with some of their existing sponsors, some of whom either reduced or or eliminated their support of Cato. And that's just a great example of Cato's willingness to sometimes take the heat, in that case in a financial sense, but sometimes uh, with respect to media attention in order to, um, you know, to, to uh, stick with principled stands that are consistent with the libertarian philosophy espoused by Cato. There are uh, several opportunities. The, the country, at least uh, at the state level, is moving in a uh, broadly libertarian direction on some issues, particularly uh, marriage, uh, drug laws, uh, criminal penalties for, for certain issues. What do you see as uh, opportunities where Cato can have a, a disproportionate impact uh, on uh, policy arenas in the next decade or so. You've talked about the movement of in certain policy areas in a libertarian direction, and there's been a lot of talk about a libertarian moment. I'm trying not to use that term because we want this to be much more than a, a moment. Moment's we want end. this to be a long-term, a long-term trend. And I think that I'm very optimistic that the trend will continue because I see our philosophy as being very internally consistent and and coherent, unlike um, the, uh, you know, in the political realm, the the philosophy, or it's hard to call it a philosophy of either progressives or or conservatives. Um, The uh, very interesting that with uh, police misconduct getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, airtime media attention recently, that's that's um, you know a policy area in which Cato has been out front for for a long time, along with along with drug policy, um, and uh, I think Cato has been successful in drawing attention to that and also capturing the 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 benefits of this moment with uh, public uh, concern about militarization of police and being uh, very timely with research and events that try to, uh, I don't want to really use the word capitalize on that attention, but um, in order to use these opportunities to move things more in the direction of where we want to see the debate go. One of the projects that uh, John Allison took a, a special interest in, and of course he will become chairman of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, is, is monetary policy. What is that center going to do? Cato has been had a long history of hosting a, a very important monetary conference every year uh, that Jim Dorn has helmed, but now it's this monetary center will be expanding. We've expanded our roster of scholars. So what value do you expect that center to deliver? This is an area where I think, as you as you point out, Cato has always been quite prominent and has recognized the importance of um, of monetary policy, of uh, uh, keeping the Fed under control. When John first approached me as a supporter with the idea of the 
uh, Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, I was immediately taken with the idea it was an opportunity to really augment and accelerate Cato's efforts in this area and through the generosity of some of our key supporters. Uh, John is able to assemble the resources necessary to uh, increase our investment in that, in that area, as you mentioned, bringing, bringing more scholars on board. And I think uh, it's very important because there are many people uh, with whom I agree on uh, many ideas and topics in the arena of free market economics who don't see the importance of reforming monetary policy, possibly reforming the Fed. And I think that that is one of the immediate objectives of the center is to, as George Selgin, the director, says, to, to make people aware that there is a problem. Um, I have acquaintances who will be uh, very chagrined at the amount of money the government spends but don't have the same passion for reforming monetary policy, reforming the Fed. And they don't realize that the Fed is the enabler for a lot of the other government mischief that occurs. And I really like the way the center has been teed up to not advocate for one particular form or reform or another, but merely to, you know, um, ignite more of a debate, to shine more light on the fact that we have uh, a monetary policy in a central bank that runs policy in a very um, arbitrary manner. And it, it's possible for uh, the debate to move in a direction, again, of not a specific reform, but an array of potential alternatives that are just much more consistent with our principles of you know, limited government, rule of law, do you suspect that the, the reason that people uh, who may be otherwise very excited about free markets uh, don't understand the role that the Fed plays in um, allowing a great deal of malinvestment, of giving the federal government cheap loans I think <laughs> so that, that they, I, can, they, can, they can extend spending, that, they, that I, hard choices are delayed because of Fed policy? I think that's exactly right because – you have many people who agree that spending's out of control, that we shouldn't be running up the kind of debt that we are, um, but they don't have the same passion for monetary policy. And we need to convince them that without the Fed enabling um, by, by pre printing, printing of money, uh, politicians wouldn't be able to run up these debts, wouldn't be able to spend this much money. I think there's also uh, you know, a much more fundamental issue for libertarians is that uh, the Fed doesn't have a lot of accountability um, you know, within, the, within the political system. And so I always get nervous when you know, government agencies with a lot of power are able to wield that power in ways that are not controlled or ways that are, are arbitrary. We have to – begin to see monetary policy in a way that's consistent with our other values. We reject central planning in any other economic realm, but somehow we seem comfortable or at least more comfortable with central planning in the monetary realm. All right. We're going to leave it there. Peter Gettler, the new president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Please continue following our work and uh, sharing Cato Audio, which is now available as a podcast at our website, cato.org. At the Cato Institute's recent conference on poverty in New York, Columbia University professor John McWhorter discussed some policy reforms that could reduce poverty in America, a primary problem leading more Americans to stay in poverty, he says, is America's decades-long failed war on drugs. The first thing that I think will make a major dent in black poverty is to eliminate the war on drugs. And that's not just because that is a particularly favorite subject of mine. It's because it really does apply directly 
to this problem. So never mind that the war on drugs is a failure. I mean, that's, that's an ineluctable fact. From 2006 to 2010, heroin overdoses went up 45% amidst a war on drugs that during that time had been going on for over 40 years. Hopeless. So, first of all, it doesn't work. Second, never mind that the war on drugs is what creates the sort of thing that leads to episodes such as what happened in Ferguson. As I argued in time a few months ago, if we look at the entire trajectory of what happened between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson, the key point is what led Michael Brown to have the oppositional attitude towards Wilson that he had. And wait, as I said in Time Magazine, that attitude was justified. He was justified in his dismissal of Wilson and what he clearly felt initially as an inappropriateness in that man's authority. Where that came from was the way the police had been treating that community for years. And in terms of the militaristic nature of it, that traced to the war on drugs and its effect on all sorts of communities like those. So, never mind that the war on drugs does create that kind of chip on the shoulder, which I think is justified in a lot of black men that can lead to such grievous consequences as those more important is this. When welfare was reformed to be limited to five years back in 1996, it did wonders for black child poverty because it was a major benefit to black women who had been on welfare before. For five years, great. But the old policy where you were on welfare and no one cared whether you got a job, that deeply harmed black communities. There were people at the time who thought that black women would wind up shivering on subway grates. That was reasonable, as it happened, and thank God they were wrong. And I'm aware of no record of any black women who've been affected by welfare reform who resent it. It hasn't been a magic bullet. It hasn't created a new middle class, but it's certainly a heck of a lot better than the way it was. However, welfare reform has largely improved the lives of women. At this point, we also need to get to men, because half of human beings are men. And that has been more difficult over the past 20 years. Now, what does the war on drugs have to do with that? It's delicate to talk about, but nevertheless, I think it's true. The war on drugs discourages black men who have been dealt a bad hand by life from getting legal work. It's as simple as that. If you've gone to a terrible school, you haven't had a great life. You live in a very isolated community. School isn't really working very well for you. You haven't had the benefit of horizons to think about where you could go. Well, what are you going to do in terms of work? I think most of us in that situation would either be tempted or would have a sibling who would be tempted to maybe do a kind of work that is done within your community, by people who you know of your social class and your color, who speak the language that you do, where there's always a looming promise that you might get rich, you probably won't, but you could, and you can keep the wolf from your door. There's a factoid that's general now that drug dealers don't get rich, sure, but you might keep the wolf from the door. It's tempting, it's there. I can honestly say that if I grew up in a black inner city community, the person that I am would probably have chosen that over going and getting some sort of grueling legal work with the idea that I had to do that for a while and build job skills. It's a perfectly natural decision. However, what creates that is the war on drugs because the reason you can keep the wolf from the door is because drugs can be sold at a markup because they're illegal. If you couldn't sell them for that markup, then nobody could make a living selling drugs on the street, and therefore, the only choice for a person would be to make the best of what is unfortunately the worst and seek legal employment. That's the way it used to be. So this is not science fiction. 
that's the way it used to be before the war on drugs. One of the oddest things, if you read ethnographies of black communities before the war on drugs, is that as hideous as that world before the civil rights movement was, you can go into even inner city, what we would call black communities, 93%, 94% of black men of whatever degree of education work. You had to. Now, I'm not saying that any of that society was utopia, but that one part of it was. There was no such thing as making a living by what a typical newspaper will call odd jobs and getting by. No, you, you had to get a job. And what's important about getting a job, this is not some sort of anti-Macassar moralism here. What's important about getting a job is that you start in a lowly job, and then you work your way up, you have job skills, and after a while, you're much less likely to be poor than you are if you're slinging drugs on the street and likely to either be killed or, if not that, spend a good portion of your young life in prison. Poverty is inevitable. So the war on drugs is what creates that. It creates this endless temptation. Entrepreneurship demands taking advantage of the knowledge available to deliver something new or better. Robert Woodson is founder and president of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise. His project is to help low-income Americans take advantage of the all-important knowledge of time and place and help themselves to a better life. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Conference on Poverty in March. Yeah, there's a... Uh a proposition of mine is, and is, um, God, give me the strength to tell and pursue the truth, especially when it's inconvenient to me. I believe that if we are going to move in a different direction addressing poverty, we have to be willing to, to embrace new and, and forward-thinking solutions. Um, I'm a veteran of the Civil Rights Movement. But I left that movement in the late 60s because I believed that many of those who suffered and sacrificed most did not benefit from the change. That once racial barriers were lowered, in order to walk through the doors of opportunity, it required preparation. And this was not uh, a factor in the civil rights movement. But I also recognized that the poverty programs after the first year was doomed to failure because for the first time in history, government intervened in the economy on behalf of low-income people, and they took massive num amount of money and invested in, in, in professional providers for the poor. So 70% of every dollar that goes to the poor does not go to the poor, it goes to those that serve poor people. And they ask not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable this year? So we have created a commodity out of serving poor people and wonder why we continue to have poverty. And so I, and to my social science colleagues, uh, I say perhaps we need to do some cost benefit of social science research over the last 40 years to see what it has produced. Uh, as a measure of whether we ought to be going forward. So our approach is that we must take the principles that work in our market economy and apply them to the social economy. In the market economy, 70% of all jobs are created by entrepreneurs, just even though they're only 3%, because most of the imagination occurs in the smallest units. David Birch's study tells me that entrepreneurs tend to be not A students, but C students. A students come back to universities like this and teach. C students come back and endow. <laughs> because smart people have to have all the answers before they act, and when they act, the opportunity is gone. What there is in this, lacking in this debate, is a crisis in imagination. You realize that 60% of Apple Corporation's income comes from a product that didn't exist six years ago. Because in our market economy, we're willing to listen to a practical source of new knowledge. We look for 70% uh, of all pharmaceuticals 
drugs that we use come from aborigines, some Indians who began to eat bark when they had malaria, and the, and the researchers afterwards found out that's where your quinine drug, racerpine, the drug of the, the compound upon which we have uh, sedatives today, came from untutored monks overseas. And so in every other aspect of our life, we look for new knowledge and new information in unusual places, but we're unaffected by the professional credentials of the source of knowledge. Only in our, in our social economy do we have professionals who dominate uh, this discussion. So what we do at the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, we go around to low-income neighborhoods and we ask questions that are never asked of low-income people, and that is not how many people are in there who are raising children that are dropping out of school in jail and drugs, but what about the 30% who are raising children that are achieving against the odds in these toxic environments? They are the anti-poverty experts. They are the community antibodies, and the challenge then is how do we go in and find them and incentivize them? I can take you into a low-income public housing in, in Washington, D.C. that defies what all the experts have told me. And that is 70% of these mothers are raising children in public housing. The residents there decided to take charge, expel the drug addicts, better manage their own development, and in 10 years they sent 10, I mean 800 children to college. But not a single social scientist came into that project in 10 years to inquire as to how and why they were successful. And so my, 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 my challenge to you in the minutes I got left is what we do in the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, we have found healing agents, social entrepreneurs that are bound in low-income neighborhoods, but the qualities that make them effective also renders them invisible because they're too busy solving problems. We have to go in, what we do at the center, like, like a venture capitalist, and a venture capitalist does two things. They bring not only money, but also they bring managerial expertise so that somebody is helping 50 kids today can help 500 tomorrow. So we help grow social enterprises, and they are the source of new knowledge and a source of, of transformation. Do we really spend more and get less for our military? At a March policy forum on the Pentagon budget, Cato Institute Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies Chris Preble said many of the problems of Pentagon spending have to do with delaying inevitable difficult choices about American security priorities. Military spending in inflation-adjusted terms is still quite high in historic terms. Uh, if you take out the cost of the wars, uh, you look just at the Pentagon budget, we're going to spend, on average, in the next five years, more than we spent during the Cold War in inflation-adjusted terms. No one really disputes that. Now, a number of people say, in fair, fairly, that that statistic, absolute spending, inflation-adjusted spending, is not the best measure, not the best metric. Instead, you should look at defense spending as a share of GDP or defense spending as a share of total federal spending. And in that sense, it's true. Defense spending as a share of GDP has come down, for decades actually, and defense spending as a share of federal spending has been declining since about 2008, and probably sometime in the middle of the next decade, 2024, 2025, at, based on current projections, defense spending will actually be less than we pay on interest on the debt. Okay? So, so what we're spending as a share of total federal spending is declining. It's interesting, when you ask the public, when you poll on this question, it's been asked by Gallup going back to the early 1970s, you ask them, do you think we're spending too much, too literal, or about the right amount? Um, it's about evenly divided, three ways. About one-third of Americans think we spend too little, one-third we, we think we spend too much, and about a third think we're spending about the right amount. Okay, so we're at, an, we're at a unique point, and these numbers do change. It's one of those polls that actually does vary quite a bit over time. Clearly, those in the spending too little camp, that includes Senators McCain and Representative Thornberry, the chairman uh, of the respective committees in the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. They think we should be spending more. There was an article, they wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week 
mentioning that uh, President Obama's request is about $36 billion over the caps, and they want to spend uh, roughly $78 billion more than the caps, or, or a little bit more than twice as much as uh, President Obama. Uh, and the argument is that, you know, they, that the, the, the Republicans can't be taken seriously on defense if they're not going to spend at least as much as President Obama on defense. Now, they think that we're not spending enough because the military is too small. And, well, it is. It's too small, of course, as a relative sense, but the military is smaller. Again, no one disputes that. I actually, I looked this up today. I was reasonably confident, but I actually looked it up today. 1952, the height of the Korean War, active duty end strength peaked at 3.6 million. Active duty, 3.6 million. During the Vietnam War, peaked at 3.5 million in 68. Okay, so in the previous two wars, peaked at 3.6, 3.5. In the latest round of wars, 2010, it peaked at 1.5 million. Again, this is active duty. This doesn't include Guard and Reserve. So less than half the total in uniform, and yet Pentagon spending and inflation-adjusted dollars was higher in 2010 than in either 1952 or 1968, 35% and 32% higher, respectively. Okay? So just using that, and I think a similar story could be told with respect to the Navy or to, to airplanes, right? on the surface, it appears that we're spending more and getting less or as spending as much as and getting less. Well, do we? Do we spend more and get less? I've already alluded to this indirectly. I mean, the military of my parents' generation was comprised primarily of conscripts, right? We had a Selective Service Act. People were obligated by law to serve, men, okay, to be precise. And often, not always, but often against their will, that wouldn't have been their first choice, let's put it that way, okay? It was just what they had to do. Okay? And they were relatively poorly paid relative to their peers, and they received minimal training because, after all, it would be foolish to invest a lot of money and time in people who you didn't expect to retain. So they weren't very well trained, and they weren't very well paid. And again, they executed their missions heroically under harsh conditions, but they were, by and large, temporary soldiers anxious to return to their lives when either the war was over or their obligated term of service was up. The military today, with no disrespect at all, to that of the World War II or, or Korea or Vietnam generation is completely different. And I think the finest force in the world, in our history. Because why? Well, it's comprised of people who serve by choice, first and foremost. Because they make this choice, we as taxpayers pay them reasonably well, especially compared to their peers, okay? Um, and especially, and Dove again alluded to this, especially when you convince them or you get them to look at the entire package of benefits, not just their salary, not just the, but their entire package of benefits. It's a pretty good deal, okay? Um, and also there's training. They get training that is, that is of value to them. Um, and so again, we're willing to invest in training because we're confident that some number of them are actually going to stay in. They actually, that this dividend, that this investment will actually pay off. So my point is we spend a lot, but I'm not entirely convinced that we're getting less. In fact, I think in some places we're getting more, and I think it's a debatable point, one worth debating, and I suspect we will, but I think I could make a similar argument with respect to ships and respect to, respect to, uh, to aircraft as well. Okay? But again, a debatable point. We're spending more, not in dispute. Why are we spending more? That's really what we're talking about today. Um, now, myself and others here, we, um, we believe we're spending more in part because it's not well allocated. No one disputes that there's some waste in the Pentagon. It's how you get at it. And again, this is where I think there may be some differences of opinion because McCain and Thornberry in their op-ed that I mentioned, they admit there's waste in the Pentagon, um, but they say sequestration does not target waste. It cuts spending recklessly. Well, yes, but they do not say that if the Pentagon, if Congress, budgeted to the spending caps, then sequestration doesn't come into effect. So they could budget in accordance with the caps, and not be subjected to the goofy meat acts. This is what Leon Panetta called it, the goofy meat acts. So if they had submitted a budget that adhered to these limits, they could make conscious, wise choices to try to better allocate the resources, whether or not they will or not. We don't know. Pretty basic human instinct to avoid difficult choices. Um, if something can be postponed, it will be. Uh, that's why we haven't dealt with other big problems like the entitlement problems that we have in this country. Um, but I think that our government has chosen not to do these things that we all agree are, are, make sense, in part because they don't feel like they have to, right? That they're not really being held to the, their, their feet to the fire. 
And I think they are less likely uh, to make those changes, difficult changes, if the BCA caps are raised or eliminated entirely. If European NATO members want to be protected from aggression, perhaps they should spend just a little more on their own defense rather than depend on the United States for an open-ended guarantee of their security. That from Cato Institute senior fellow Doug Bandau at the March event, The Future of NATO and the Transatlantic Security Framework. Of course, it's interesting. We're discussing these issues in the midst of uh, the Asian pivot, which this administration has promoted. And it was supposed to be a profound reorientation of American foreign policy. Yet at the moment, the United States is engaged in a new war in the Middle East and is confronting Russia in Europe. And one starts to wonder about what kind of a pivot it really was. But I do think the pivot does raise the important issue of priorities, which is certainly from World War I through the Cold War, Europe was the priority. The United States was prepared to go to war to ensure that uh, Europe was not dominated by a power viewed as hostile. It was prepared to uh, you know, put American troops in to abandon its historic policy of pretty much kind of strategic independence and a splendid isolation. And you know, it was only when you got to the end of the Cold War where that suddenly started to change. And I think for good reason. Starting to look at economic issues, security issues, the dynamism of kind of the region, all of these suggest that Asia was taking on extraordinary importance that would grow in the future relative to that of Europe. And especially, and I think most important from an American security standpoint, that Asia is the host of the one country one can imagine as a pure competitor to the United States. It is not, it is not Russia. It is not Russia. It is China. So from an American standpoint, where do you want to put your resources? And the, the problem for America is that rich though we are, resources are not infinite. So you've got to make choices. And that, I think, kind of animated this idea within the administration of a pivot or rebalance because Europeans pointed out that if you pivot toward, you're pivoting away, and they were insulted to be pivoting away from them. Well, rebalance, as if that was something different. And I think that it should be clear that the United States can't do everything. That, uh, you know, so if you want to kind of increase resources in one region, you're going to have to take them from somewhere else. So the question is, can you maintain your resources in Europe and pivot to Asia. And that, I think, is a very important issue. If the US really believes Asia's more important, China's more dangerous, it's got to come from somewhere. I think even more important to my mind is the change in the world. Now, foreign policy should be reality-based. It should be based on practical circumstances, on uh, you know, kind of the world as we find it. And I would argue that the world has changed extraordinarily since NATO was created. You know, NATO was created, you, know, you look at the 1950s, the 1960s, I would argue NATO made sense. Kind of our side, in terms of Europe, was divided, war-torn, fractious. There was still an extraordinary fear of Germany. I mean, there's a fear of Germany now, but it's a rather different sort. Talk to the Greeks, and you know, they're, they're not terribly happy with uh, Berlin. But it's a very different kind of vision. But back in the 50s and 60s, the whole notion of Germany's role, the thought of German reunification, had a very different cast. The second was the other side. I mean, the Soviet Union, plus its satellite states, its alliance, whatever you want to call the Warsaw Pact, was clearly dangerous, a cautious predator, nevertheless willing to take advantage of any opportunity. So America provided this wonderful shield, and I think it made sense as a temporary measure. I mean, Eisenhower warned about dependence of Europe, and those concerns were left unheeded. Of course, you know, the famous aphorism about NATO came from Lord Esme. You know, the purpose of NATO was to keep the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. And all of that made some sense in the 50s and 60s. It's harder to justify than I think today. So you look at today, number one, European Union is wealthier than America, a larger population than America. So it's not as if America is defending war-torn, hapless, impoverished countries. It's defending a wealthier aggregation of states than America. And of course, all the Eastern Europeans rushed to join the West. I mean, you know, this kind of alliance with the Soviet Union was never really an alliance. It was an opposed system. And the moment it fell apart, everybody's wanted to come to the other side. And of course, the European Union is far stronger than Russia on any measure that it wants, about eight times the GDP last time I checked, three times the population. I mean, Russia remains a pale imitation of the Soviet Union, even after 15 years of Vladimir Putin. You know, not a nice place, but it's certainly not the hegemonic ideological competitor for the United States and Europe that the Soviet Union provided. 
Yet, I would argue, in effect, the Cold War alliance persists. America dominates. I like to call NATO, the, it's North America and the others. I mean, that's really what NATO is. That America, of course, spends the most. I mean, that's always been the case. Europeans consistently fail to keep their promises to spend more. I mean, that was throughout you know, the Cold War, but it's today as well. Even the most threatened European countries don't do very much. The Latvians and Lithuanians, oh, they're not rich, but they spend 1% of GDP on the military. Okay, you're worried about the Russians and you want to spend 1%? And you want us to put troops there. Excuse me. I mean, whose border are we talking about? Even Poland. Poland's below 2%. Poland, at least it's increasing. But Poland, oh my goodness, the terrible Russians. Well, do more. If you really think there's an existential threat, do more. The massacre at the offices of Charlie Hebdo in France has forced a discussion about the press, religious taboos, and threats of violence in the face of those who value unfettered speech. At the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February, Fleming Rose discussed the struggle he faced when his Danish newspaper published depictions of the Prophet Muhammad and the firestorm that decision sparked. Rose is the author of the new Cato book, The Tyranny of Silence. When I wrote my book, at some point, I, I met uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, who was in Copenhagen, talking about a, a novel that he just had released in, uh, in, in, in Danish. And, and Rushdie said to me something very important, uh, at least to me, when it comes to the, uh, to the understanding of, um, of, of free speech. He, he spoke about... Um, human beings as what he called storytelling animals. Um, and uh, we are born into stories uh, and we use storytelling as a way of defining and understanding ourselves. And uh, it is a phenomenon that uh, derives from a language instinct that is universal and in it in human nature, which means that um, that it is in fact what makes us different from uh, other creatures, that we have a language and then we can speak and make sense of ourselves. So, so every time somebody violates uh, or tries to put uh, uh, limitations on, on speech and on language, it is not only um, an attack on the political right to free speech, uh, Rushdie said, it's, it's a violation against human nature. Uh, and I think that was a little bit about what uh, John Ellison talked about today, that, that this is also a philosophical discussion. It's not just about policy, policies and rights. It goes to the heart of what it means to be a human being to, um, to me. And... Uh, on the conflict over who has a right to say what, over who can claim the exclusive right to tell certain stories, be it an oppressive state or a minority, uh, Rushdie said to me back in 2009, and I'm quoting, this goes back to the question of what sort of society we want. From the moment you begin to talk about uh, limiting and controlling uh, certain expressions, you step into a world where freedom no longer reigns, and from that moment on, you are only discussing what level of unfreedom you want to accept. You have already accepted the principle of not being free. And I think that is very fundamental. Uh, and it, it goes... Um, it, it goes to the heart of the relationship between the one who speaks and the one who is a target or a receiver of speech. Um, between the individual and uh, the community. And to what extent institutions, uh, groups, individuals outside the speaker should have a right to determine the limits of uh, one, what one uh, can say. 
And in the US constitutional system, uh, there is more, more focus on the speaker, on the individual. Uh, you have the right from autonomy that, that uh, is basically, I think, what Rushdie had in mind when he spoke about this, that, that uh, it's part of our autonomy as individuals that we should have a right to speak our mind. In, uh, in Europe and the rest of the world, it's the other way around that uh, um, the community and those who are on the receiving end of speech do have wide powers uh, to determine what one should be allowed to say. And I think uh, this, uh, this uh, difference in approach has, has, um, has had far-reaching um, uh, consequences for the concept of tolerance. Because uh, originally, tolerance, in fact, uh, implied uh, one's ability to bear what one couldn't stand, or what one didn't like, uh, or what one hated. Uh, freedom for the speech we hate, I think, was the way that Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, uh, phrased it. Um, but, um, but because uh, the, the receiver of speech uh, have far more influence on what, is, what should be allowed to be said, uh, tolerance in many quarters uh, has been turned on its head. So, so the concept of tolerance is coming to be something uh, that the one who speaks um, has to grip with and not the object of, uh, of speech. And I think that is, it's a very dangerous development uh, and I, I, I mean, I, I faced it um, quite severely um, back in 2006 because a lot of people were saying that I was intolerant publishing those cartoons while I believed that those who wanted to kill me or ban those cartoons were those who were intolerant, but that was not the majority uh, opinion. I can tell you. Um, so so uh, uh, the concept of tolerance, uh, the, the change of the concept of, to of, of tolerance, I think, is a, is a big threat to freedom of expression in today's world. Then I want to say a little bit about free speech in a globalized world, because that's what I had to grapple with at the height of the cartoon crisis. Um, and uh, I think uh, this process um, or the challenges we face, uh, they are driven by two factors. Uh, the one is migration, the fact that people are moving across borders in numbers uh, never seen before in the history of mankind. And it means that every society in the world uh, is getting more and more diverse in terms of culture, ethnicity and religion. And it means that it's a lot easier to get offended by what people around you say, because we are more and more, more, and more different. We have more different religions. We have more different ideologies. We have very different ways of what it means to be a human being uh, in the world. So I think that's one huge challenge. I mean, you are an immigrant country, but uh, in Europe, um, most countries in Europe uh, used to be quite homogeneous uh, and they are now becoming more and more multicultural. So we have to deal with how do we, how do we negotiate uh, the right to freedom of expression and freedom of speech in this increasingly diverse world. The other factor that is driving this uh, process is uh, communication technology, uh, the digitalization of the world. Uh, the fact that um, when something is being published somewhere, it is immediately published everywhere. Um, and when information travels, uh, context is lost. And it creates a huge space for misunderstandings and uh, manipulation by, by politicians and groups uh, and so on and so forth. And I also experienced that uh, uh, during the, um, the ca ca cartoon crisis. 
But uh, migration and digitalization also means that, um, that, that all of us are being impacted, are being influenced what is going on outside our countries. It's very clear in, uh, in, in, in Europe. Some people are in fact saying that the Middle East have mo has moved to Europe. Um, that, that, um, and, and, and during the Khartoum crisis, there were in fact people in the Middle East who seriously believed that they, they had a right to determine laws and rules in, uh, in, in Denmark and other European countries. And, and that's a fact of life uh, due to migration and, and technology, I think. So you have competing and, and, and very different approaches to free speech, um, and they are clashing. Um, and I think that, that, uh, that, that uh, the disappearance of, of, of borders, migration, and technology uh, means that there is a need for, um, for trying to formulate some universal standards that you have a common language to talk about this uh, no matter uh, where you live. And to a certain extent, this goes on within the, uh, the United Nations. Um, but when it comes to, uh, to, to laws and, and the approach to free speech in different parts of the world, I've, I think that uh, things are moving in, um, in the uh, other direction. Um, and in fact, uh, more and more countries are passing um, uh, laws that fragments and undermine any universal standard. And this point has been stressed uh, by Miklas Harashti, who is the former uh, representative on freedom of uh, the media for the OSCE, the organization of the for security and cooperation in, uh, in, in Europe. That I think uh, it, it has uh, 57 countries as its members. So, ha so he has been working uh, in a very practical sense with these, uh, these issues. Uh, Harashti uh, writes that um, the very notion of an international standard for limits on free speech becomes obsolete if the fragmentation into separate, content-oriented, historically based, culturally defined, politics-shaped, country-specific approaches to speech restriction becomes um, accepted. Um, in the words of Harashti, no international advocacy for free speech is uh, possible without a shared assumption that only actual incitement to actual crimes must be criminalized, but otherwise offensive speech should be countered by speech, not courts. Unfortunately, um, this fragmentation of the international standard to a certain extent started in Europe with um, the passing of uh, Holocaust denial laws. Um, and uh, one, of, one of the big surprises I experienced uh, writing my book was to find out that uh, the vast majority of these laws were in fact passed after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, I thought that it might have made sense if they had been passed in the 50s or the 60s uh, right after the Holocaust. Um, and it indicated to me that uh, they were passed not to prevent incitement to violence, but for other reasons. Um, and I think that's the case. Um, the horror of the Holocaust serves as a founding narrative legitimizing European integration, and it's the key motivation for hate speech laws on the continent. The Council of Europe's High Commissioner for Human Rights has called for all 47 member states to pass laws against Holocaust denial. This European narrative is based on a widely accepted interpretation of what led to the Holocaust. It basically says that anti-Semitic hate speech was the decisive trigger, that evil words beget evil deeds. 
that if only the Weimar government had clamped down on the National Socialists' verbal persecution of the Jews in the years prior to Hitler's rise to power, or if the Nazis had been prevented from pursuing their propaganda of hatred following 1933, then the Holocaust would never have happened. And I must say, I was confronted with this argument during the Khartoum crisis in 2006, when in fact David Irving, a British Holocaust denier, was sitting in an Austrian prison while I was walking freely around. And a lot of Muslims uh, said, you know, why are you walking freely around while David Irving is in prison? Researching uh, my book, uh, I looked into what actually happened in the Weimar Republic. And I found that contrary to what most people think, Weimar Germany did have hate speech laws. And they were applied quite frequently. And the assertion that Nazi propaganda played a significant role in mobilizing anti-Jewish sentiment is, of course, irrefutable. But to claim that the Holocaust could have been prevented if only anti-Semitic speech and Nazi propaganda had been banned has little basis in reality. Leading Nazis such as Josef Goebbels, the propaganda minister of Hitler, Theodor Fritsch, anti-Semitic uh, German journalist and editor, and Julius Streicher, the uh, executive publisher of Der Stürmer, this uh, um, uh, Nazi anti-Semitic magazine, they were all prosecuted for anti-Semitic speech. Streicher served two prison sentences. Rather than deterring the Nazis and countering anti-Semitism, the many court cases served as effective public relations machinery, affording Streicher the kind of attention he would never have found in a climate of a free and open debate. In the years from 1923 to 1933, Der Stürmer was either confiscated or editors taken to court on no fewer than 36 occasions. The more charges Stryker faced, the greater became the admiration of his supporters. The courts became an important platform for Stryker's campaign against the Jews. Alan Baravoy, the general counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, makes the point in his book, uh, When Freedoms Collide, the case for civil liberties, that cases were regularly brought against individuals on account of anti-Semitic speech in the years leading up to Hitler's takeover of power in 1933. And I quote from uh, Baravoy's book, Remarkably, pre-Hitler Germany had laws very much like the Canadian anti-hate law. Moreover, those laws were enforced with some vigor. During the 15 years before Hitler came to power, there were more than 200 prosecutions based on anti-Semitic speech. As subsequent history so, so painfully testifies, this type of legislation proved ineffectual on the, one, on the one occasion when there was a real argument for it." End of quote. Uh, the same can be said about Yugoslavia before ethnic cleansing and wars broke out in the 90s. Yugoslavia had rather tough laws criminalizing incitement to national, racial, or religious hate. In fact, people were being put in jail for telling an ethnic joke. Little did these laws help to prevent ethnic violence in the wars following the disintegration of Yugoslavia. Nevertheless, the dominating uh, view in Europe is that too much freedom of expression will destroy the peace. And in that sense, the European Union is driven by what I would call a benign utopia that aims to eliminate hate and create an insult-free public space. Um, and I think this uh, approach uh, became evident when the European Union 2012 uh, was awarded uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. The, uh, the leaders of the European Union made no reference to the close relationship between freedom and a sustainable peace when they received the prize. Instead, they focused on 
the European countries' effort to avoid war and division and create a continent of, pre of peace and prosperity. I think, in fact, that Vladimir Putin would agree. He would more or less uh, say the same thing. And uh, behind the Iron Curtain, you all also had uh, peace for uh, 60 years, as you had in Western Europe, uh, apart from an uprising Hungary and, Czech, and the, Czech, the Czech Republic. But, but more or less, you had peace. But it was a very different kind of peace than the one in uh, Western Europe. So, um, I think this is a flawed uh, approach um, uh, to uh, mass murder and the understanding of, of freedom of expression and, and their relationship. And I think that uh, Europe would do itself a great service if uh, the narrative about the Holocaust was to be integrated within a broader uh, anti-totalitarian framework so that we make the point that hate speech, in fact, wasn't the trigger for the mass murder of the Jews and other people during World War II, but that, in fact, it was a clash between two totalitarian powers in the center of Europe the Nazi regime and the Soviet regime that was the, pi the primary cause. And if that's the case, it means that the destruction of Jews in Europe um, was closely connected to the destruction of freedom. And moving forward, it would mean that the struggle against evil doesn't require less freedom, but in fact, quite the contrary. This summer, the Cato Institute is once again hosting Cato University at our headquarters in the heart of Washington, D.C. Cato University is the premier educational event for the Cato Institute and we hope you'll join us July 26th through the 31st as we explore the ideas of liberty and fundamental values of the American Republic. For more information, visit cato.org slash Cato University. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.